0: Forever,
1: dog. Just between us. Just between us.
2: Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and haver
3: of a runny nose. My nose is running. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bi bisexual icon, wink, and you better go catch it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Why
3: do you like that so much? It's such an obvious classic joke. <sighs> I love a good
2: dad joke. I love it. I guess it. it's
3: classic for a reason.
2: It really is.
3: I used to think that stuff was like the height of comedy. Who's to say it's not? That's true. Who's to say it's not? I still love like, dad, I'm tired. Hi, tired. I'm dad. That's Mm-mm. still pretty good.
2: Dad, what time is it? Time to get a watch. Oh, that was my whole life.
3: OK, so I saw something on TikTok. You know how we talk about AAVE, which is African-American vernacular Eng- English. I saw a thing on TikTok, which was a bunch of black women making fun of WAVE, which is white American vernacular English. All of us. I was like, what are they talking about? All the sayings, I was like dying. Like they were like white American vernacular English is like ready, Freddie <laughs> or like. Whoopsie Daisy. Whoopsie Daisy is a classic. Crying laughing. Obviously, because I'm white. I didn't realize it was the only like things that white people say. And I was crying. This woman had so many of absor- if you look it up, the videos are it hit me right in the gut. Like I was like, <laughs> it's, so- it's five o'clock somewhere. Like it's just a <laughs> it's
2: fucking Oh boy. <laughs>
3: I was like, oh, no. We're all just like the worst, most corny cliches. Holy shit.
2: I have a question for you. Do you know multiple jokes that you could tell someone at any time? No. Why? I like have like five jokes that I could always tell you. Is that not normal? (laughs) What's what are they? Okay. You want one? Yeah. Okay. So there's a scuba diver and he goes down about 10 feet. And he sees a a guy without any scuba gear. And he's like, oh, pretty impressive. Goes (laughs) down another 10 feet. The guy is still there. And he's like, this guy is a pretty good swimmer. Goes down another 10 feet. He's like, the guy's still there. He's like, wow, this is amazing. And uh, he goes down another 10 feet. Guy's still there. He's like, wow, I got to figure out what's going on. So he writes on his little underwater board. He says, how are you doing this? And the guy grabs the board from him and writes back, I'm drowning, you idiot. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So I just have I have a bunch of those just at the ready.
3: That's really
2: good. <laughs> anyway, this is just between us. The variety show filled with heartfelt
3: advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. Oh, that's a good joke. Who told you that joke? Your dad? Probably. Yeah. Sometimes there is a
2: period of time where I would just call my dad and my dad would just recite jokes from a joke book without having read them first. Yeah. So he didn't know if they were any good.
3: Oh. He just went in and did it.
2: Yeah. Just went in and read them.
3: And then if they weren't good, would he be like, you know what? Scratch that one. Or would he sell it?
2: He'd sell it. You know, I tend to be a little more forgiving with my dad's jokes and my mom will be like, that one was terrible.
3: (laughs) Oh my god! (laughs) Rough crowd!
2: Yeah, but she's been listening to them for a lot longer than me.
3: (laughs) That's true. I think about that in my relationship. I'm like at what point am I going to really start to fucking turn? <laughs> oh no. You see the way that like, you know, you'll like catch your mom rolling her eyes behind your dad's back and you'll be like, "Oh man, like at what point do you reach the level of over it?" Hopefully never. But like a little bit. Like with anybody that you've known a long time or been around a long time, you can kind of start to predict them. Yeah. But maybe you just see that as as how fun and great
2: Yeah, how fun and great.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Just like our episode today, we've got a fun and great episode for everybody. (laughs) We're going to be talking to Joe Dombrowski, a.k.a. Mr. D, who talked to us about comedy and teaching and told an amazing story about being a kindergarten teacher. And also we talked about a lot of serious topics like education reform and gun violence in schools. So it's a real roller coaster of an interview.
2: And later we're going to be talking all about manifesting. Do we believe in it? Yes. Should we believe in it? Mm-hmm. What is it? You mm-hmm. get it. But first, everyone, we have to answer a listener's question. So you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Anonymous Texas. Ooh la la loo. Texas. All right, here we go. Hi, Allison and Gabby. I love your podcast. It is the highlight of my week every time it comes out. I've listened to almost every episode and it has impacted my life in so many positive ways. I have an international question for y'all. I really need your help. TLDR. How do you change your own views when you know that you are wrong about something? I'm a late 30s cis woman, she, her, and I've let myself be radicalized or radicalized myself online and not in a good way. Due to reading I was doing online for several years, I developed problematic and offensive views on certain topics. I think if I told you what those topics were, you would not even read the rest of my letter, much less consider helping me. Several things happened last year that made me start wondering if the views I developed were in fact wrong or problematic. I hadn't thought so before. Since then, I have been trying to read things counter to the offensive views I developed. But a lot of times when I do, I can't help but mentally argue. Whenever friends have tried to convince me why my views are wrong, it just causes me to dig my heels in more. It's so frustrating because that undoes a lot of the progress I am trying to make. I can't figure out how I can change my mind when a big part of me is still convinced that all of my problematic views are correct and that it's everyone else who is problematic. I would really appreciate your help with this. P.S. Yes, I am already in therapy.
3: Oh, this is so tough because in terms of things like that you're taught from a young age, it's so hard to break those views. Like you've had more information to the problematic side than you've had information to the other side. Because if you were reading this kind of stuff for years or if you were raised in it, like that stuff has been beaten into your brain so much more often and so many more times than this other, this new stuff that just showed up in the last year. To me, a lot of times it's trying to like balance it out, like trying to be like, okay, I have to give myself a little bit more time because this other time was so, you know, was beaten into me so hard.
2: This is such an interesting question. And I really appreciate that this listener even asked it because it's a kind of a scary and vulnerable thing to even ask. And I wonder if the the way to attack this isn't so much through attacking the actual views, but attacking your thoughts about being wrong about something.
3: Oh, interesting. And
2: kind of like reworking what it means to be wrong and that it's okay to be wrong. And also just getting in touch with yourself that like this defensiveness that you feel when you start to fight back on the arguments that maybe you know are actually right, but then your defensiveness kicks in. Allowing yourself to have that defensiveness, but then not not being the final feeling. Mm -hmm. That like, okay, when I start to educate myself I'm going to feel defensive. That's normal. But I can't stay there. I have to push past that. I have to, you know, it is so uncomfortable to be wrong. Yeah.
3: <laughs> like, it feels horrible. It's like this weird mix of like being foolish and also like feeling like the world view that you've had is incorrect. Like this weird sort of like, oh, I'm putting on glasses for the first time. And like, it's so uncomfortable.
2: I can't speak to exactly what these views are because the reader wasn't specific about them. But I imagine that there is an element to what they're reading that counters their views also implies that people who have the views that they hold makes them a bad person. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? So then you're also dealing with the discomfort of feeling like if you were wrong, then not only were you wrong, but you were also a bad person. Right. And that is like a lot of like really uncomfortable things to feel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I think that maybe the way to attack this is like, is just like kind of increasing your distress tolerance is increasing your tolerance for that discomfort Mm -hmm. and accepting that like, this is going to be really uncomfortable and Mm -hmm. I'm going to feel really yucky. But at the same time, I think that it is worth it to me and my journey to push past that, to push past my defensiveness, Mm -hmm. to be aware of my defensiveness, to honor it, but also say, I don't think that you're serving me. Yeah.
3: Yeah. You know, what's interesting is there's a lot of views that you don't realize go together or that travel in the same circles that some of those views might seem reasonable. And then when you unpack what is at the root of them or what the other people who in this group who believe this way, the other views that they hold, it can kind of really jar you back to knowing that that's not correct. Like sometimes people will have like a little bit of a right wing view and I'll be like, okay, like I can kind of see where you're coming from there. But one thing I talked about on Bad With Money is that you can sort of like be like, okay, I I see where you're coming from. But then two steps away, not even two steps away, you'll be like, what else does this person believe? And almost entirely, it's transphobia. The next step, you know, you'll be like, oh, well, they're just like, you know, fiscally conservative or they'll have some sort of views where you're like, I can kind of see. But then like, it's so, it just like gets to transphobia so fast. And I think sometimes, and that's just a personal, like for me. So I think like sometimes seeing the people that you read or looked up to as you were being radicalized interrogating what else they put out, what else they believe, what other views they hold, what their fan base is like, what the other subscribers, this newsletter, whatever it is, like what they also cape for and hype for, you'll immediately start to be like, oh, wait, no, no, no. You know, like it's never just one problematic view. It's always like comes in a real neat little package. Um, And I think sometimes in order to see the true face of what it is, you have to see what else they're putting out there at least for me, that that had been helpful whenever I sort of started to be like, oh, I don't know, you know, like it's hard. Like a particular one for me is I grew up uh, Jewish day school, Jewish summer camp. I went on birthright, you know, like all this stuff. And so like a very natural part of my education from middle school, high school in co- and college, even though I went to a secular college, was a uh, diehard Zionism with no questioning that we support Israel. We do all this stuff for Israel. You have more in common with an Israeli than you do with an American as a Jew. Very, very intense. Right. And coming to grips with that not being so black and white and not that not being exactly as I was taught it growing up every year, multiple times is hard because there's people on my timeline who I went to high school with teachers that I admire uh, you know, clergy that I that I looked up to when I was younger. Um, and their posts, if I was just seeing those posts, I understand how I would feel. That must be the right thing. But then when you start to follow or look at stuff from the other side, I know that they're right, but I still do feel defensive. And I do what you do, which is I'll start to argue in my mind. It's very uncomfortable because it's not just going against you, but it's going against like, everyone you grew up around is still saying, you know what I mean? Like, it's really hard. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to. But the self-awareness that you have of like being like that thoughts in my mind and it's not a right thought is like a huge step and is not going to solidify itself, you know, in a year. It'll take time.
2: I also think it might be helpful to try to figure out why you believed these things in the first place you know so right. let's let's just say this exercise's sake that that the the views are tr- that you're transphobic right that you mm-hmm. don't think that trans women are women let's say that that's what you think i think it could potentially be really helpful for you to figure out why do you think that mm-hmm. or like why did that argument appeal to you exactly and potentially it might be because you feel threatened you feel like if, if these people come into to your space, then then you are no longer, you know, like you, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but it's unpacking that that messaging actually isn't true. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that like, and I think like similarly for you, Gabby, where you're like, well, if I'm a good Jew, then that means I support Israel and people that don't support is, you know, like I'm like you're coming from a place of I I poor jews and so Mm -hmm. but the messaging is wrong (laughs) where like the messaging that the only way to support jews is to support the state of israel it's more complicated it's more complicated than that and this messaging that like if you're a woman trans women are are coming for your your rights and your spaces yeah like that's also not true but let's but if you believe that that's true then that's scary. Do you know what I mean? So like yeah. I think that like unpacking why these these things got through to you and what they're speaking to at the heart of it, I think can maybe really help you start to unpack it because you might then also see the flaws in the thinking and the flaws in the messaging that you bought into, but you can understand why it appealed to you. And then mm-hmm. you can separate yourself from it, if that makes sense.
3: Yeah. What what is the fear? You know, I think like To me, I mean, obvious, this is so obvious, but white supremacy is so based in fear. Mm -hmm. It's based in fear that you're going to become the minority, which I always find hilarious because they're like, there's no need to teach critical race theory. There's no need to to, for kids to learn about racism because black people are the racism doesn't exist anymore. And black people are just as successful, whatever, just as uh, have as many opportunities, all this stuff. Right. And then they're like, but I don't want white people to be the minority. And I'm like, that's interesting. So you admit. That being the minority is hard and bad. <laughs> <laughs> so you he admitted. You yeah. know?
2: So yeah, I mean, I think you put it even more simply for than I did, is is figure out what your fear was. Right. What is your fear? And so, and then how did that messaging get to you through that fear? And then doing the education to realize that you've been afraid of the wrong thing.
3: <laughs> yes, correct. I think you know, I'm I come from a family that was largely decimated by the Holocaust. Two two people made it out. You know what I mean? Out of like huge, huge numbers. I don't have, I don't have any cousins. Like there's, my family's very small directly because of the Holocaust. So that fear is a very easy fear to use to then, you know, get you to kind of carte blanche everything because Mm -hmm. that fear is so real. And so I think that like, it it does come down to is and is that a real fear? And if it is, is this the way to address it? Is this belief the way to address it? Which uh, generally, if you're coming from a place of fear? No. (laughs) I mean, generally,
2: the thing that is best for everybody is equity for everybody is like rights and and access for everyone will help everyone versus picking one one group over another group is not ultimately what is going to be best for anyone.
3: Yeah. And I think you can see like, even with, you know, JK Rowling's letter where she was like, I'm transphobic, um, which she used a lot of words just to say those two words. But the letter, I mean, you can read it in it is a lot of fear herself of like her own womanhood. And Mm -hmm. like, she mentions like, you know, if I was younger, I maybe I would have transitioned. And like, then it's fear of her own gender thoughts and her own. It's just like, so clearly comes from a place of like, well, but if that person's trans and that's that's how they feel, then then I guess I'm trans. And it's like, hmm, interesting, you know, like or like, oh, I don't, I don't like that. Like this is happening, and it's like, do you think maybe you have internalized misogyny? Like it's just this very interesting outward projection of like your own fears. Easier to do that than to interrogate yourself. To dig into yourself in this way is going to
2: be. Uncomfortable because you might not like what you find. Exactly, but I think that that you have to remember that like so much of this bad stuff is because society taught us to think that way. Hundred percent, you have access to all of this, and so it's not like oh, you're an inherently bad person, and therefore it's easier just to pretend that you're not bad and keep your thoughts. It's saying this is the real work, the work that I'm doing right now to work through these thoughts is what makes me a good person. Correct. You know, like, this is what matters. This is that turning moment. And it's not that, like, oh, you're not fixable because you had these thoughts in the first place. Because we're all conditioned to have a lot of really bad thoughts. Mm -hmm. That's just the society in which we've been brought up in. Mm -hmm. And now it's our personal responsibility to do that work and to work through that and get out on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. And I want to just say that, like, You know, you were like, oh, if you revealed in the email what these thoughts were that we wouldn't even want to help you. That's so not true. true.
3: It's not true at all.
2: Like, if anything, it's like how wonderful that you're asking for our help. Like, Mm -hmm. that's amazing. And that's, you know, like, that's the growth. Like, there are so many people that are raised a certain way or become indoctrinated in a certain thing. And then when they change their mind they are the most powerful of all people because they know how that oh. change happened they know how they got from point a to point b and then they can help other people do that and that's
3: so amazing you should watch scientology the aftermath this guy mike rinder is like a perfect example of this because not only did he believe scientology but he did all of these horrible acts in the name of scientology and now he's trying to like Go make amends. But you'll see him interviewing people who are who will be like, and then what happened? And then he's the person being interviewed will be like, and then Mike Rinder ruined my life. And he's just like sitting right there. That's an extreme example. But that's a good example of someone who's just like realized what their whole thing was and how wrong it was. Yeah, it's
2: taking accountability, but it's also not thinking that that accountability means that you're irredeemable. Yeah, that you're irredeemable. Exactly. Yeah. We hope that that helped. If you want to submit your international questions, send us to just between us pod at gmail.com. That's just between us, pod at gmail.com.
3: Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Joe Dombrowski. Stay tuned.
2: Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting
3: tough questions. This week on the show, we have Joe Dombrowski, a.k.a. Mr. D, who took the world by storm in 2017 with a viral April Fool's Day spelling test prank that landed him multiple appearances on the Ellen DeGeneres show. Joe is a stand-up comic who's been touring and he mostly highlights his crazy life as an elementary school teacher. Hello, Joe.
0: Hello. You nailed that. (laughs) Thank
3: you. I was reading off a paper, not to brag. (laughs) So how do you talk about things that happened to you as a teacher? without getting in trouble.
0: Oh, you're under the impression that I don't get in trouble? <laughs> I live my life and ask for forgiveness later. That's what I do. I, Was- In all honesty, though, I do. like. I always change student names and genders so you never know who I'm talking about. I never give out last names. And everything that I've written into the show, I've tweaked just enough so if you know, you know, but if you don't know, you really don't know. <laughs> It's all safe. It's a safe space on that stage.
2: Are you still currently teaching while touring as a
0: stand-up? So I was on tour the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. And then the pandemic happened. So I had to cancel my tour and all the rest of my dates. So I was at home twiddling my thumbs. You know, teachers were leaving the classroom at an astronomical rate. And just because I'm a comic talking about teaching, don't get it twisted. I love the profession. I'm a huge advocate for education. And I've always loved my time in the classroom. So I was watching teachers leave. And I was like, I'm sitting here on my ass with a skill set and credentials to do it. Let's see what's out there. And funny enough, the school down the street from my house had a kindergarten position open and I took it and I got it. And I went for the rest of the pandemic, taught starting virtually and then moved to in person for the rest of the school year, taught kindergarten. And then I had an opportunity to continue teaching kindergarten this school year, but I also was able to go back on tour. Um, And I decided that it wasn't going to be appropriate to be on tour and teach because kindergarten parents you know, they are the best, but also the worst. And I didn't need them worrying about one more thing. My teacher, my kid's teacher's traveling the country and then comes right back in the classroom to work with my kid. So I was like, you know what? This is my year to double, triple, quadruple down in the comedy dream, and it has been ever so successful.
3: (laughs) What were you teaching before kindergarten?
0: I've taught everything kindergarten to sixth grade with the exception of first and second. Okay. So yeah, 11 years in the classroom.
3: Kindergarten is a different game than sixth grade. I feel like this time in the pandemic
2: has really made people finally start to appreciate teachers in a new way. And like... What do you think, like, we don't get about what it means to be a teacher day after day?
0: That's the whole reason that I do the show, right? So you, you come to the show and you laugh. And although I do have a predominantly huge teaching audience, I'm really gearing my humor towards non-teachers. And what I want is I want non-teachers to go back in their car after the show, still be laughing, look at their partner and say, that was hilarious, but that was kind of fucked up. Like, shouldn't, do teachers really have to go through that? we should do better by teachers. And the reason that I do that is because the sad fact is it's not teachers who's making the decisions in education. It's almost exclusively non-teachers who decide how education is going to function in this country. And if I can target them with the vessel being comedy, then I feel like I can break through and start to make change in that way. So it's really just me tactfully trying to swarm the masses with a message about we need to do better than teachers. So I'll leave this a little bit open-ended by saying, come see the show. You'll know why this profession is (laughs)
3: what was so wild about teaching kindergarten?
0: So the wildest thing about kindergarten is always their unfiltered mouths. There is a very interesting bloodline that goes directly from one's brain to their throat and words just are thought and fly out. (laughs) I dyed my hair before I left for tour. And this one of my kids is like, um, why did you do that? I said, I just wanted to look a little bit younger. And another kid looked at me and said, but what are you going to do about your face?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Reading you, but they're just telling the For truth.
0: Self. Oh. For self. On the daily. And then also, I'll say this. I'm riddled with ADHD, and it's not a colloquialism. That is my life. Mm-hmm. And I feel like my ADHD thrives in kindergarten. And it was actually the first time that I felt the most successful in my career as a teacher. Because in kindergarten, you are putting out... 30 fires at one time and you don't have a choice but to be successful so to paint the picture we all have to line up for line to get ready to leave for the fire drill but this one's over here whopping around scissors pretending they're ninja stars and there's another one over here who just put gum in another one's hair and this one's having a temper tantrum because they're not going to be allowed to be elsa for halloween in 2032 so (laughs) i gotta handle all this in 14 seconds and get them outside and accounted for. And I just can thrive in that sort of energy.
3: (laughs) What are yeah, you said it's mostly, the decisions are being made by non-teachers. What are like, obviously we know a lot about how funding doesn't really like go to what it needs to in education. What other stuff are those people just not understanding?
0: predominantly the biggest issue is the funding because funding in public education is the most non-equitable thing I could tell you about. Like, we could spend the rest of the podcast talking about this, but we won't.
3: Yeah, we might want to. It is interesting to us. Yeah, Uh (laughs) we love
0: that. uh 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 I love, I'm here for this. Let's break it down. Okay, so all schools are being funded on a federal level, correct? Right, but we have public schools who are in affluent areas and we have public schools who are in non affluent areas. Well, the affluent Mm -hmm. areas still have parental funding that comes in on top of Mm -hmm. what's being given by the federal government. So they are at the same rate, but they're always going to be on top. So unless we're supplementing that income from this school too, to bring them up, we're not winning. Then there's other things as well. You know, the schools that need a little bit more help need to be staffed more than the others, because they have parents who are working two and three jobs. To put food on the table for these kids, they can't come in and volunteer. They can't be in the PTA. They can't plan the extracurricular boosters and fundraisers for that school. So those schools need to be given more incentives to have more staff to make it functional and make it work. And until we're really looking at education as an equal playing field, we're not doing right by all of America's children. Because if there's one demographic of people in this country who need a fair shot at life, It's the children of this country, regardless of what life you're born into.
2: I love it. That's what we're here for. (laughs) And also, I mean, there's no incentive to become a teacher, really, because you're so underpaid, so underappreciated, so overworked, right?
0: Huge part of it, too. If you think about it, like who's making the most money? It's like people in tech and, you know, doctors, lawyers, those type of people, too. And those are hard to come by jobs. Well, if the wages of educators are higher. We're naturally going to attract the best and the brightest to become teachers. Therefore, we can be more selective of whose teachers. And not only are we going to have more, but we're going to have more and better people seeking this career opportunity. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to happen because money talks, money talks. And it's just a fact. That's how we're going to attract more people to do this.
3: Have you worked at all different kinds of Schools in terms of like how much money's coming in.
0: Yes, the majority of my experience is in uh, Title One inner city. However, I did specifically do a couple years in public affluent, and then I have done public uh, private schools as well. And I did that specifically so I could have a more well-rounded understanding of education as a whole. And you would first of all, everybody's got problems. So you know, <laughs> people who are saying that they're not—that's not true. But the other thing is that really looking at who this country caters to, you'd vomit. Oh,
3: I'm sure. I mean, the, even the extra attention, having tutors, having, oh. you know, uh, not having to stay after school or having getting to stay after school for like sports or extracurriculars and not having to stay after to wait for a parent to come pick you up because they're working their second job. I mean, and I'm sure those worlds were night and day to you.
0: Well, let's think about this, right? I've worked in a school. We'll, we'll break this down into music, right? I worked in a school and we'll say the theme of that building was like classical Mozart, right? I worked in another school where the theme song of that building was from City High. What would you do if your son was at home crying all alone on the what bedroom What would you floor do? A classic. he's hungry, right? Yeah. Tell me why both these schools have the same amount of social workers. Tell me why.
3: Ugh, right? Uh, yeah. Unbelievable. Did you have to pay for a lot of stuff in your own classrooms? Oh,
0: my God. <laughs> no, almost everything. Yeah. Almost wow. everything, in until I was in private school. Then I got anything I wanted. But again, who what what kids am I serving? The kids who already right. have everything that they want. But this is great, and disgusts me at the same time. We're in a state of the world where educators can publicly post their Amazon wish list, which I think is beautiful because we're now giving access to anybody who wants to help this school in this classroom can immediately do it. You think a doctor's going to run out of scalpels and put that on their Amazon wish list? Right. Why are we setting up teachers to go into an environment when they're not fully prepared with the tools that they need to succeed? Mind-blowing.
2: Yeah. How do we fix this?
0: Loaded question. Loaded question. I mean, there's so many different things. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I know how, because I don't. But I do absolutely think that the people that we're putting into powerful positions that deal with education... Uh, need to have an experience in education, Need to be need to have years on the ground so they can look at it fully well-rounded and understand where we're coming from and where we're going. And the other thing too is we need to start really making sure that big business in this country are making moves to not only support education financially, but also to support education in their own backyards. Because there are too many times when I see huge corporations that are right next to underprivileged buildings, and it will never sit well with me.
3: In terms of them funneling money into the community that they're in?
0: Funneling the community and they're in, and also depending on you know, what those wages are, education as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big advocate for recreational marijuana. Love it. Love this stuff. Right. And people take that for granted so much because if we look at the taxes that that's going to bring into and where that can actually be allocated, the mind blowing amounts of money that could go into public education in the entire country by something that we're banning because a few people feel that it's immoral for them as a person. Right. Well, what's really immoral is what's happening to the country's kids. And we know we need more money. So let's get creative here.
3: Cut the war budget in half, please.
0: How many things? Which is why I say I'm not going to stand here and act like I know how Mm -hmm. I can come up with ideas. And I would love to be in a room with a bunch of other people who also have ideas. But those people are educators. They're not Betsy DeVos. You know what I'm saying? I was
3: about to say.
2: (laughs) And then there's also been a lot of debate recently about what type of education kids should be getting and if parents should be the ones dictating that education. What are your thoughts on that?
0: You know what? I actually am a big advocate on uh, diversity in education in terms of what types of things are offered for kids. You know, there could be a public school that's just your general run of the mill, but then we also have magnet schools that focus on the arts or science or math. I have no problem with public versus private versus charter versus public. What I do have a problem with is where the funding is coming from and the fact that people are choosing to go to one school over another. You're choosing to go to one school over another because one is not as good. Well just because one is not as good, you still have to think. There are kids who do not have a choice. They need to go to that school and they will continue to go to that school. Well, if that school is not as quote unquote good as the other that's in the same community, then those kids are not being set up for the same rate of success as the other. And mm-hmm. we're doing disservice service to an entire group of learners. And mm-hmm. the reason why I'm such an advocate for kids in teaching is because they don't have a choice. They don't have a voice. So they need to rely on adults who are able to stop and say, this is not okay. And these kids deserve better because they're just going to, they don't know the difference. This is the life they've been dealt and they're just going to go with the punches until they're able to reflect on it and say, damn, we need to do better. But that's just kind of how it needs to be.
3: I've seen a lot more of like parents saying, Well, I don't want my kid to be taught about racism. I don't want my kid, you know, like they like are going in and sort of dictating like what the teachers can choose to teach.
0: There is a lot of that happening right now, too, especially with critical race theory, which is mind blowing, because let's break this down on who's in the classroom, right? Who are the teachers? You'll see all over in education that teachers are typically this, I call them Mary Poppins teachers, cookie cutter individuals that are exactly the same year after year, a kid's going through year after year, right? Learning the same things year after year. We need to get diversity in those teachers and allow them to be themselves and also allow them to teach about the world period. Because Mm -hmm. kids are not always going to be in your sheltered little Bible Belt house. They're going to go out there in the world and they're going to run across teachers, people, people, of all different backgrounds, cultures, family units, whatever it is. And if they're not learning about that in school, then we're just sending them out into the world completely blind. And that is when bigotry starts to happen because there was no exposure. They did not know. They weren't Mm -hmm. able to learn and grow, which is why for the majority of my career, I'm a proudly out gay teacher. The way I like to look at that is, although I'm not gonna sit there and be like, I'm gay, five-year-olds. That means I like dudes. Yeah. Eventually, those kids will grow up and they'll remember, oh, my teacher was gay. I met his partner. He came to read to us. They were great, so other gay people must be great too. Mm -hmm. If we can just be ourselves in the classroom and teach about the world As it is, then we're setting students up for success when they're no longer in the confines of our classroom.
3: Oh, But Joe, don't you think that as a gay teacher, now 30 kindergartners will have to be gay because they were taught by you?
0: No, no, honey, that's (laughs) what I'm trying to do. (laughs) 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 Just
3: slowly... (laughs)
0: I'm originally from Detroit, too. So, like, try me. I got a quick mouth. Like, I'm going to get you. I've had a couple parents along the way try to, like, combat me on being gay in the classroom. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry if I wasn't transparent enough. I'm just curating a class full of future Pride Float Grand marshals. So (laughs) now, you know, (laughs) any future teachers listening, don't do that.
2: (laughs) Have people tried to get their kids out of your classroom and with another teacher because of it?
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. But I was fortunate enough to have great bosses who advocated for me. And... Mm i at the time i was very young and i was like no i want them out like i can't work with this parent then flip the script to realize no i want them in to hopefully change the parent because a parent doesn't realize how much i care the Mm -hmm. parent doesn't realize how much work i'm going to put into this particular student's growth never you know this doesn't end happily where the parent wrote back and was like i was wrong about you but one day,
3: yeah, an ex-boyfriend of mine was a, a male preschool teacher. And I know with young kids that he was like the only one. And I remember when we were dating, he subscribed to a newsletter that was specifically pe- to support like male preschool teachers to support each other because not just gay, but there's like, there was so much like weirdness. Like when he yeah. would say, oh, I'm a preschool teacher as a guy, people would be like, that's suspicious. Like, that's weird, know. which is like part of why teaching is undervalued because they're like, that's a woman's job. So like, why, why are you working with young kids? And like, it's just very bizarre. The boxes that we've said are women, you know, it's like nurses, like, oh, that's a woman's job or like, you know, any kind of thing like that. Do you find that is are there, they're not probably are not as many male teachers as there are female teachers, right?
0: No, astronomically not. I've, I've worked in buildings where I'm the only one on staff, period. But yeah, there is a, even when I got down into those lower grades too, the kindergarten, there is a weird, like looming, I won't say assumption, a a looming thought of pedophilia, which blows my mind. And it's a weird stigma that male teachers uh, walk around with. And there's also a really huge, anti-trans and education movement for educators and it just disgusts me because if we think about like who wants to become an educator people who knowingly want to work with kids and knowingly will accept being poor doing so yet we're gonna deny people to take that job because of just innately who they are I will never be able to wrap my head around that. If you have a desire and what I call a teacher heart, if you have a teacher heart, you need to be in the classroom. It doesn't matter who you are. You have a drive to work with children. You need to be working with children. So that is definitely something that needs to be, conquered. Can
2: you talk a little bit more about the anti-trans-like movement within educators?
0: You know, I can't speak too, too much to it. I'm not incredibly uh, written, well-written and well-read on it, but I have worked with educators who are trans, uh, specifically Owen Bendano, I went to high school with, is the first trans man teacher of the year for the state of Michigan, who is recognized at a national level. And speaking with him and kind of like talking about the longevity of their career, for the vast majority of their career up until now-ish, it was said to be kept hush-hush. It was said to not talk about. And to tell an individual, come do this taxing job every single day, but don't be yourself, it's trauma that you can't see. It's trauma that is that grows every day, and it's something that festers within a person that can only get worse. Right. Mm -hmm. And there are laws in other states where like trans people have no rights if they are denied uh, the opportunity.
3: Fired, denied employment, gay people. You can get fired as a gay teacher. Yeah, Right.
0: And then on top of that, could you imagine working into a building where in your state bills are passed where trans students don't have access to the things that they need and can't enjoy the things that they are into extracurricularly? But you're the trans teacher who can't even talk about who you are to your staff and coworkers, like that's incredibly taxing on a brain.
3: As a queer kid growing up, the gay teachers were, I mean, if you have straight parents, you don't know any gay adults and the gay teachers were the ones who a lot of us gravitated to, a lot of us hung out, you know, like I see on TikTok now, trans teachers being out and having all the queer kids at the school, like eat lunch in their room and stuff. Like it's so the role model part of it is you're not getting, as a kid, you're not getting it at home and school might be the only place you're getting it.
0: Oh yeah, big time. I've had gay teachers along the way when I was in elementary school and I remember like just feeling this innate connection. Oh yeah. Yeah, and it was like this like, I am you, but I'm not 100% (laughs) sure why. But, you know, if the earlier kids can make that connection and it's not something that's unnamed, then the easier it will be for that child growing up.
2: Yeah. As a kindergarten teacher, did you see a big difference between kids that had gone to preschool and kids that hadn't?
0: Oh, my Lord. Yes. Yes. There's a huge difference. Kids who come in and went to preschool prior to kindergarten are able to... They'll. It's called letter sound recognition, kind of self-explanatory, but you know the letters and you're able to say the sounds. Typically, kids who don't go to pre-K have no letter sound recognition, and not having that coming into kindergarten is almost a full year setback. Because for the other group of the kids, I can start here, but for the kids who didn't go to pre-K, I'm starting down here. Now, what people don't realize is there are truly no reason to not put your kid in preschool because there is so many options for federally funded free preschool for all students in this country. Um, It's just a matter of signing them up and getting there. So the access is there. So I think on that issue, it needs to be more commonly stated how important it is for children to have pre-K before entering the K-5 setting and the fact that there are options out there.
2: Oh, there are, because I know that a big agenda is to get it to be more universal pre-K, but there are options even now available for everybody.
0: Yeah. Have you heard of Head Start?
2: Yeah, I have. Think so, yeah.
0: Yeah, head start head start would kind of be like a title one model of pre-K free for families to attend who might not be able to afford traditional pre-K, but that's in all states and that's available to all children who are able to get it. So I would say the biggest issue would be visibility. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of parents automatically assume, I can't afford this preschool before knowing that there are options available. And the great thing too, is many Head Start programs are within the K-5 building that the student will you know, go into the next year, which is setting them up for success in so many behavioral ways.
3: Right. Right. My partner's niece, they're like getting ready to put her in preschool. And the parents are like going and interviewing at preschools, like preschool. I feel like this doesn't, it's like preschool and then kindergarten through 12. They're like, who cares? And then college, like, why is preschool like this?
0: It's the best first chance that a child has at success is pre-K because you're, you're not only learning, you know, essential precursors to the academic curricula that you'll be getting, but you're learning the most important, Important tools, which is how to school. You're learning how to school. You're learning how to, you know, come over to line. You know, sit patience. You're you're learning sharing. You're learning teamwork. If a student comes into kindergarten and already understands the concept of sharing and why that's important, I mean, magic music my ears.
3: (laughs) It's just so inaccessible for, or or even culturally, I don't know. I'm not like an expert. I just, so there's like a lot of, I know universal pre-K is very much a thing that Elizabeth Warren talks about. And that like a lot of senators talk about as being something that would be ideal.
0: A lot of times people don't connect the transportation aspect to it as well. That's the
3: thing, right. How to get there, how to get picked up, how, what the timing of it all
0: there might be a, a free option for a family that's five blocks down the road. But what, your four-year-old's going to walk themselves there? Like Exactly.
2: Yeah. I also wonder your opinion on like parents either being like too concerned that something is wrong with their kid or not concerned enough that something is
0: wrong with their kid. <laughs> My opinions on it, I would err on the side of be less concerned because there's so many years to grow. And then it's too many times I see parents who are like, hyper-concerned and end up impeding on the kid's growth because the way you learn is by making mistakes. So I encourage mistakes to be made. Even when kids lie, like I tell the parents, hey, just letting you know, lying is happening a little bit. But don't be alarmed like they're supposed to lie. They're learning that that is an ability that they have and it can be used for good or evil. And we need to just keep an eye on it. (laughs) But I'm not saying like, let's bring a behavior plan into it right now. So parents get real intense about it real quick. But on the other hand, too, when parents are less involved, the teacher needs to understand that you get a glimpse of that student for the five hours that you have them. And you don't know what happens when they go back. So don't make assumptions and don't judge a parent for not being as involved as the student they sit next to. You don't know what you don't know.
3: Yeah. right. What is there a protocol? Like if a kid comes in and you're starting to notice they're wearing the same clothes or their hair isn't combed or things like, you know, like you start to sort of be like, OK, maybe something's wrong at home.
0: Uh, yeah, And usually, you know, already coming in because the teacher before will kind of give you a heads up. But if a student is coming in in that sort of situation, typically you're already working in a Title I setting. And that school most likely will already have resources. So the Title I schools that I've always worked in, we had like a coat closet where the community would just donate kids coats all the time used and new, and if we noticed a kid's jacket was like very tattered and was a hand-me-down for the past 10 years, we'll just let him go to the coat closet and pick up a new one to keep yeah. boots, socks, underwear, all wow. that. So that, that's really common. As far as like, when do you intervene? That is a fine line too, because if we think about it, a student wearing the same clothes a few times in the week is sad, but it does not mean that a student is necessarily being neglected So it's not necessarily something that you're going to call CPS on, you know, for those listening who aren't familiar, CPS, Child Protective Services. And that is a fine dance as well, because you always need to think about your interactions when it comes to that as how would you interact with a friend or a person in the wild, right? You'd go to the source first. So as difficult Mm -hmm. as the conversation might be, you might say to the parent, like, hey, I'm noticing this, like, what do you need? Because what Mm -hmm. am I going to do? Call CPS and have them knock on that parent's door when they're dealing with their own stuff? Come on, you know? Right. But there's a difference between that and having a student come in with fresh cigarette burns on their arm, which is something that you obviously need to take action for immediately. Because as all teachers in the country are mandated reporters.
3: Right.
2: Which
0: is pretty serious.
3: Have you ever dealt with police in schools?
0: I have. (laughs) I'll say this, there is gun violence in education is horrifying and uh, I have never been more uncomfortable when I've had to sit through active shooter training Right and like, it's like facilitated by officers and my head just goes to the space of like, I'm being instructed as a teacher how to use my clothes to stuff a bullet wound, like what?
3: You're not active military out in the field. Like, it's ridiculous.
0: I- I'm like, that's where, that's where my life is. And then they send you back to your classroom and they say, okay, scope out the places. Like, would you be able to take out a ceiling tile and shove the kids up there? I'm like, what? Like, this is where the world is right now. Why don't we look at why this is happening also?
3: Yeah, yeah just gonna say
0: that back to my social worker comment there's not enough in the world but there should be at least one social worker per grade level in every single school every single school right there we're tackling mental health issues in education and i'm talking k-12 like yeah and it, it boggles me that we can't even do like you can't just do that right
3: no they spend a ton of money on active shooter training and drills I mean how do you how does that affect the kids I remember when I was in kindergarten we did obviously like I'm from Florida so we did like earthquake and hurricane drills Mm -hmm. and we were we would have to go out into the hallway and cover our heads and stuff and that was like slightly traumatizing but I can't imagine being that age and doing an active shooter drill
0: yeah it's kind of weird because you tell the kids to like oh we're doing this in case like a a deer comes into the building and it's like yeah it's like there's times in education where you have to think like am I going to fight my own battle right now because your job's always on the line Mm -hmm. so it's like am I going to tell them a deer in case a deer comes in the building because also who didn't think about this because if a deer comes in these buildings these five-year-olds are going into the hallway to see the deer
3: right Like,
0: like again a non-educator's making the decisions here.
3: I have never heard that you should tell them that it's in case a deer comes or
0: a, in. Or a deer or a dog. This is like common ground. Like the teachers who listen to your podcast are going to be like, yep, yeah, they told us to say that. In yeah.
3: case a dog comes in, a you have to hide? A dog or a deer
0: or like a, a beehive. Yeah, I've heard so many different variations so of
3: dep- So depressing. Is that just an
2: elementary school? Do they tell the truth in, like, middle and high school or not? Yeah, I never
0: taught middle and high school. The highest I ever taught was six. And when I taught six, it was still in an elementary setting. Mm. So I can't speak to that. I would hope not.
3: They wouldn't believe you.
0: They wouldn't believe you. Or would they?
3: That's so awful. All
2: right, let's end this on a on a more positive note. Of, okay. oh, can you tell a story about a time where a kid just, like, surprised you in a delightful way?
0: <laughs> I'm in my classroom. I'm teaching, right? And I hear... A little like kid's toy go off, so just set up the classroom for you. I'm teaching immediately to the wall to my left, which is about sixteen feet away from me. I hear a toy going off. it's clearly coming from the backpack row I'm hearing it i'm like it's gonna it's gonna stop, and it stops. Keep teaching it's still happening so the thing is, in kindergarten, you pick your battles. It's not always worth it. So I just stopped and said my class, I'm like, guys, I know that one of you have a toy. We all hear it. <laughs> if it's yours, will you go turn it off? That's all. Nobody's in trouble. Just go turn it off. Nobody pipes up. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I'm like, okay. Keep going, keep going. On and off, on and off, still going. It's growing a little bit louder, but it's still going. So I'm like, okay. If I go over there and I find something, I get to keep it. No noise. Are you sure? No hands. Like, okay. So I'm like down there, I'm listening, I'm listening. I'm like, okay. And I, I'm at the backpack. I'm like, it's this one. I'm like, okay, I know whose backpack this is. I see the girl. I'm like, I'm I'm like looking at her, giving her one last chance. I unzip her backpack. I look inside and there's two kitty cat eyes looking at me and I pick up a kitten (laughs) from her backpack and I said, I guess this kitten is mine.
1: Oh my God.
0: She apparently had found a kitten on her way to work, was not her cat. Because when I called her parents, she was like, they were like, we don't, we don't have a cat. I'm like, you do now. So
3: that's two things, right? You go, your daughter brought your cat to school and then the parents go, what cat? We don't have you a go, cat. Oh, no. Uh, I'm
0: <laughs> no. like, what are you talking about? I'm like, it's, it's gray. It's got stripes on the back with a little black tip on the tail. They're like, we don't have a cat. I'm like, well, what do you want me to do with this?
3: So the girl found it on her way to school and put it in her backpack.
0: I don't, she left very close to school. I'm talking like I can see her house from the- Right. Found a litter of kittens, got one. <laughs> oh my God
2: was she five (laughs) was the cat okay was it suffocating no
0: the cat was totally fine and the family actually did agree to keep the cat they still have the cat yeah his name name is mittens
3: That is so, also the fact that she was like, maybe I'll get, maybe I won't get in trouble if I just if I, let him open just
0: it. The cat will shut up. Yeah.
2: It was too high stakes for her to because she couldn't turn the cat off. What was no. she going to do?
0: I've been advocating so hard for them to name the cat Mr. D. I was like, please name yeah. this cat Mr. D. He, he didn't do it. Oh mittens.
3: my God. I just imagine you reaching your hand in and going, oh no.
0: And that's just another day.
3: Did the other students go crazy
0: seeing that it was a cat? (laughs) Crazy. There was no learning. There was no learning the rest of the day at all. Literally, I would say like five sentences about math and they'd be like, but the cat, do you remember? Do you remember when you went over there and you pulled a cat out of the bed? Yeah, I do. Do you know why? Because it was less than an hour ago and the cat's still on my desk. So
2: you had the cat all day?
0: I had it in a box. I ended up putting it in a box under my desk. The thing's still meowing. I put my shirt in there to like give it some comfort. (laughs) Oh my God. Because I called the office and they're like, what are you wearing at the ASPCA? Like, what do you want us to do? I'm like, I don't know. Because up until all this point, we had still assumed that it was her cat
2: oh right, right. right so you're
3: like we can't get rid of it it's her family cat yeah honestly that girl's running scams and i like it
0: oh my god like for sure it's gonna be in a pyramid scheme someday yeah. like selling you essential oils or something
1: absolutely
0: uh-huh you know oh, god that's so bless beautiful. America
1: Here oh my go. god
2: would you like to play a game show I'm in amazing okay i don't know how i could top this girl having a kitten that's not hers I in know. her backpack but i will try
0: for the shot <laughs>
2: So this game is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You could ask any clarifying questions you might have. And then you let us know what you would do in that situation. And then I just get to pick the winner. Purely based on my own feelings in the moment. Okay. It has the chaotic nature of kindergarten, I will say. (laughs)
0: Love.
2: (laughs) Okay, so our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Your partner of one year has had a platonic best friend since childhood. No. One, na- <laughs> ah! one night while you were out of town, their best friend confesses their love for your partner. Your partner doesn't want to just blow them off after a lifetime of friendship. So they sleep with them to see how it goes. You gotta no! be fucking with me. It goes terribly. And they are now more convinced than ever that you are the person for them. Would you stay with this cheater?
0: No, absolutely not. No what, way.
3: What do you mean by it goes terribly? Like what happens? Like it's they not a love
2: match. It's not a fun time. The whole time they wish they hadn't agreed to it. <gasps> not a love match. But, you know, think about it. You've only been with this person a year. This is their best friend for 25 years.
3: Why couldn't they tell me beforehand? You were out of town. No. Oh, I'm out of town, but I'm unreachable. I'm on some kind of island with no cell phone service. You're on Safari.
0: There's absolutely no way. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely not. A year, a year, and you're making these sort of decisions. What's gonna happen in five? True. I'm out.
3: I mean, it's funny that you were like uh someone that they would be attracted to, the gender that they would be attracted to best friend, and you went, I'm out. <laughs>
0: You, like, literally lost me at best friend. I didn't know that they were going (laughs) to sleep together. I'm, like, putting my actual partner in these shoes. And I was like, my partner would be a little bit tender and would be like, I don't want to hurt this person's feelings. They're a great person in my life. And my partner would tell me. And we would talk about it. And I'd say, that's great. You're never going to see them again. But just so you know. um, (laughs) But he would never be like, so I slept with them. No.
3: Wait. So, this is their like best friend, and there's never been any romantic anything between them before.
0: No,
2: they had to
3: give it a shot no, just to I see.
2: Have to no, they no, I have to go.
3: I have to go. I have to go. No way.
0: My time's precious.
3: All right.
2: Unfortunately, that person was your soulmate, and you'll never find anyone as great as them ever again.
0: Good. Later, hater.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, our next game. Is this a date? You sign up for Bumble BFF, which is that that part of Bumble to just find friends because you are new to town and looking to make friends. You match with someone and hit it off via text and decide to go see a movie together because they are also new to town and looking for friends. They insist on picking you up. And when you get in their car, they kiss you on the cheek and say you look beautiful. Is this a date?
3: Yes. Yes. It's a date absolutely because the kiss on the cheek is one thing like okay that's fine but then like saying you look beautiful is all weird it's weird but
2: you met on bumble bff
0: they forgot they switched it
3: yeah so
2: what would you do would you keep going would you go on the date i think i would
3: <laughs> Ooh. i don't know because we're in la and there's this thing where like people in la are very effusive towards each other and i think it's in a networky way where they're like, you're gorgeous. But what they really mean is like, hire me. And so like, I think maybe they're just after a job. Mm. So you
2: think it's not a date?
3: No, I think it's a networking event.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If it was me, there would be no job to have. So I would assume that we're about to dick down. And I'd probably oblige.
3: (laughs) But then you only have one friend in town. But I guess that's fine. I guess what? Now you have a boyfriend. So all right, that's, that's fine. I'm fine with that outcome.
2: Yeah,
0: he's yeah, got a friend with benefits now. That's great.
2: Yeah, they didn't understand what Bumble BFF was. They clicked they did it by not. accident.
3: Ah! <laughs> oh, <laughs> so Joe was right. Yeah. I, told
0: you. I was wow. like, it was a mistake.
3: Saw right through you.
0: Could you imagine? <laughs>
3: Classic.
0: Oh my God, that's so funny. Are these real? No.
3: <laughs> Can you oh. imagine?
0: You know what? They This is real somewhere.
3: Yeah, someone's going to write in and be like, that happened to me. And now yeah. we've been married for three years or
2: something. Yeah, oh. yeah,
0: yeah. I hope
3: that's how it went and
2: not (laughs) that they got a restraining order.
0: Since we're writing the story, it is.
3: (laughs) It went so well and they have two kids.
0: Yeah, they're beautiful.
3: Oh, I love that for them. (laughs) Okay, our final game.
2: Are you a terrible parent? You are a pushover when it comes to parenting and your teenager, 15, is starting to push boundaries and act out. In order to get them in line... You hire a -a rent-a-parent, someone who will come in and provide discipline and punishment as needed.
3: Like Super Nanny?
0: I was just going to say, this is a show.
2: Super (laughs) Nanny! This is called rent-a-parent.
3: Okay. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Your teen hates their rent-a-parent, but they do start to behave better and stop breaking curfew. Are you a terrible parent?
3: Super Nanny was, like, traumatizing. It had to be for those kids. They would, like, bring in, it was a TV show, they would bring in this woman who was, like, British and really mean, and she would, like, whip the kids into shape. I think you're a bad parent. Handle it yourself. You know what I mean?
0: I think you're a bad parent because, like, you signed up for this. Handle it.
3: That's true. You made your bed. Now you lie in it.
0: Yeah, now you lie in it. And you're the thing, too, like, you're going to call for help. Like, call, like, your mom or, like, somebody close to you that the kid at least knows. But you're going to call a complete stranger to come in and just do the work that you can't do. What do you think's going to happen when they leave? Now they're gone. Dude, they're going to listen to you.
3: Yeah, let it be someone who your kid has to see around.
0: No parent shaming, but in this um, hypothetical, you're shamed. Shame on you. (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) So
2: you don't think I should start a red to parent business?
0: No. Okay.
2: I had a
3: bit of an absentee dad. I would have loved to rent a parent. No, I wouldn't have. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just
0: kidding. As I would not have earlier, liked that at all. You learn from your mistakes. So this parent needs to just try a little bit more and try new techniques. Make the mistakes. And I the love
3: your stance on mistakes. I think parents hover too much and they don't let kids make mistakes. And I, and I think the kid will figure it out. That's my motto.
0: Please continue to preach it.
3: I love it i just think that your caregiver
2: relationship is very important and as long as they feel loved and supported and have a consistent relationship with you
3: then they'll be okay that's really beautiful
2: anyway thank you so much for joining (laughs) us where can people find out more about your stand-up everything you do your podcast?
0: Yeah, you can find me as Mr. D times three. That's T I M E S the number three on all social media platforms. Doesn't matter which one, or you can go to my website, Mr. D times for all my tour dates. Hopefully I'm coming to a city by you. I'm wrapping up the tour at the top of December. Um, we'll be back on the road around March ish. So cool. would love to see some people from here.
2: Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye stick around after the break we'll be talking all about manifesting
3: so just think about us talking about it and then it'll happen welcome back to just between us it's time for topic x x, x x x x x baby baby I just want our viewers to know I'm sitting in the sun. So if it looks weird, that's what it looks like, baby. That's called being in nature. I've never seen the sun before. Oh, my God. Well, you should experience it. I feel yeah, like it's it something really cool. everyone on Earth should experience at least <laughs> once, you know?
2: Yeah, I was just like, <laughs> oh, I thought you, I thought that your forehead was internally glowing.
3: Do you believe in manifesting? I feel so conflicted about this. I, I kind of thought you might. Do you believe in it? 100%. Really? hundred percent. Okay, yes. take me take me through your thought process. People are attracted to people who have big dreams and goals and believe in themselves. Nobody likes a Debbie Downer. People are attracted to people who seem successful, who seem like they, they want things in life and they're going after them and they don't pity party. I'm not talking about everything in life. Obviously, some stuff is, is you can't manifest like you can't manifest universal health care. OK, but that's that's what I'm talking about. Like, I no. think that that's not what I'm
2: talking about. <laughs> well, OK. <laughs> well, no, I'm just saying that I think that promoting this idea of manifesting as something that works is mm-hmm. very problematic once you get out of the world of people who just want like. Correct. Like you can't manifest. The end of racism or the end of poverty.
3: You imagine uh, just someone's someone's Pinterest board is just called the end of racism. (laughs) It's just their manifestation for the year. (laughs) Melissa's dying laughing. (laughs) It's just pictures of famous black people, but like without any sort of direction or like realistic game plan.
2: (laughs) See, that's what my problem is, is when you promote these things like manifesting, they they very rarely like come with these caveats, right? Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. then it's just like, oh, this should be your whole thing. Like I'm just manifesting, I'm manifesting. But it's Mm -hmm. like if manifestation feels like a very privileged thing in a lot of ways. Of
3: course. But that's if you're manifesting like girl boss stuff or you're manifesting like, you know, whatever. But like think about like if you want a partner and you want to date and you want a partner, you have to consciously do stuff to get that. You have to have a mindset. But that feels different than manifesting. You're manifesting a husband. No, you're actively pursuing
2: and looking for a relationship. But you have
3: to start in your own mind. Right. But I think there is a
2: component to manifesting that feels like, oh, if I just think about this thing enough, then I will get it.
3: I a little bit think that that works on some things. (laughs) On some things, I think it does. This is like dovetailing with my like positive attitude of like, Not talking bad about myself. I'm sorry, but I would never describe you as somebody with a positive attitude. No, but it goes with my like self-esteem. Like I think, I think to myself, there's like career stuff coming up, and I think to myself, I'm ready. I'm capable. This is what I want. Mm -hmm. This is what I can do. Francesca Ramsey told me that again, like she's my life coach. Yeah, you bring her up
2: ev- literally
3: every episode. I've started talking to her a lot more. Like we've started to become better friends, and she's are just you like in love with her? A little bit, yes. I'm in love okay. with her. She's she's like very goal oriented. So she told me that she wrote an uh, a journal entry to herself as if she was herself five years from now. So she wrote like today I worked on my TV show and then I went to my I went out to dinner with my what you know like the thing like. What he wrote a journal entry as if she was herself five years in the future. And I was like, hmm, I don't know. That seems like whatever. And then I did it. And I realized that my desires and wants are so not small, but they're so achievable. I'm not asking for an Oscar. I'm not asking for anything crazy. I can do it. I'm a simple person with simple desires. But isn't your desire to have your TV show go? Yeah. And so I wrote it as if that's what's happening. But you don't get to make that decision. No, I don't. But I get to be positive through the whole experience. I get to believe in myself, believe that it's going. I, you know, I don't know. I don't end up having control over it, but... I think like then you also do the thing of like if it doesn't happen, then like you kind of go like, well, I'm going to manifest that like I'll be okay, or it would go to a different network or, you know, I don't know. I think like I'm trying to see the future as the idealizing of what I want the future to be.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that we're getting into just like some like, vernacular if differences and issues where, like, for me, I think, like, having wanted a lot of things that have then not come to fruition mm-hmm. and been very close to those things and then them not happening, there is an element where I think where if I'm too goal-oriented with specific goals and things need to go the specific way in order for me to be happy, then I get I set myself up for, for potential trap.
1: Mm. But
2: if I keep things more broad and more open, where my goal is I want to be working on things that I care about, I want to be able to support myself, I mm-hmm. want to live a life that I'm proud of that is aligned with my values, that all feels more in my control than I want to manifest my TV show being picked up, if that makes sense. Yeah,
3: but I am doing that. I am keeping in my mind like this is, this is going to be great. I am I'm like manifesting. Now is that going to mean anything? I don't know, but I'm doing it. I completely agree that
2: like I think a lot about the energy that I'm putting out in the world, right? That's I think what I'm a lot saying. about yeah. like I But I just want to make some like distinctions and clarifications mm. first. So for me it's more like I don't want to make people's stays worse. I want to like people to like walk away from interactions with me feeling good or like that we each helped each other in some way that there is a that there was positivity there, not toxic positivity, but just that like that I lead with kindness, that I lead with grace, that I lead with humor. But I think that the manifestation thing is very goal specific, this specific Mm. thing. I got it, you know, like, and I think sometimes it can take out the journey of it. I think it Mm -hmm. can make you preoccupied with only one version of your life where like it's been really helpful to me to be open to multiple versions of my life. And I also think that it just like completely dismisses all of these huge issues that a lot of people have that manifesting isn't going to do anything
3: about. Of course, yeah. (laughs) But I do think a lot of good things have happened to me because... I believe in myself and I Well, believing in yourself
2: is so different to me than believing that I can manifest the specific goal to happen. Those feel very different.
3: Yeah. I think if I just think positively about stuff, then I largely things work out. But not everything, obviously. Like it's not like, you know, I'm gonna eliminate, you know, homophobia. But I have manifested it and I have put a picture of <laughs> <laughs> I have put a photo of Neil Patrick Harris on a dream board or whatever the fuck. But, like, I feel like sometimes people don't think big enough or think towards their dreams enough, then they just give up. And I see that a lot where people just, like, think, oh, well, I'm not going to, like, it's not going to happen. Or I don't know. They, I feel like people, I feel like I have a very good mindset for creatively making things happen. But I don't know. I'm a Gemini. So (laughs) delusions of grandeur. (laughs) Melissa, you want to share your thoughts?
1: Sure. Can I ask each of you what your definition of manifesting is?
3: I think thinking about the things that you want positively and being like, I can make this happen.
1: Okay.
2: I guess it's the idea that if you envision something happening, then it will happen.
1: And do you both think that this happens without working towards the goal like you just speak it into existence and it happened no it's part of it see when I hear manifesting I think that it's just like people saying something that will happen and then they think it'll happen just because they put the thought out there like thoughts or feelings and and it seems like thoughts aren't actions that go with it Mm -hmm. and so to me I don't specifically believe in manifesting but I believe in setting goals and then do taking the steps to achieve them
3: Mm-hmm. You have healthy self-esteem, too. You you probably, in your mind, are like, I can do this.
1: Yeah, I think I can do anything that I put my mind to. hmm Yeah, but I don't know if that's manifesting. Is it?
3: Yeah, it's occurring to me I might not know what it means. <laughs>
2: i just i just think that there's so many things that are out of our control yeah to sort of lead people to believe that all that they need is to want something and then it will happen is dangerous
1: (laughs) and tricky yeah that's where i get to where it's like is it (laughs) You're just thinking that something will happen without taking the steps to make it happen.
2: But Even if you take the steps, right? I mean, you have other people are making decisions that you can't control. You have other circumstances that are happening that you can't control. You have your own context.
3: Here's my woo-woo thing is that if you are manifesting and have positive energy about it, then that might influence the other person's decision because they see you as somebody that they want to be around and they think they think think of you as like a positive person rather than like someone who's like, it's okay if you say no. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And then I'm also like, if they say no, there's somebody else that could say yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I'm like in the middle of the two of you.
3: What a
2: shock. I believe in, the, I believe in a lot of, of what you're both saying. I just think that there's also a dangerous element to it. Cause then it also puts it on you, right? That it's like, you didn't get this thing cause you didn't want it enough horrible this is the thought process that leads to that of like Mm -hmm. well if you had just manifested if you had just wanted it more then it would have worked out and that's ignoring so many things that are that happen in the world so much context so much so many systems that are working against you right so that's the component of it that i don't like
1: i'll agree with that yeah i agree thank you (laughs) what do we rate this episode
3: i rate it 12 out of 10 kittens ah kittens in a bag mittens.
1: Jesus. We always have the same thing. I'll rate it 20 out of 10 positive teacher influences.
2: Yeah, And I'll rate it 73 out of 69 changing your mind. 69 baby <laughs> oh my god wow well thank you to Joe Jombrowski for being our guest Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me Allison
3: Raskin and me Gabby Dunn produced by Melissa D. Monts. Edited by Coco Lorenz, executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Silio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at Forever Dog slash plus.
2: And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash forever dog team or youtube.com slash just between us show.
3: And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team. Keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also at She Is Not Melissa, at Gabby Road, and at Allison Raskin on Instagram.
1: Bye
0: forever
3: dog